0: Our second reading for today comes from 2 Kings, chapter 5, beginning with the first verse. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man, and in high favor with his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man, though a mighty warrior, suffered from leprosy. Now the Arameans... On one of their raids, had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord just what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And the king of Aram said, Go then, and I will send along a letter to the king of Israel. He went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of garments. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which led, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you my servant Naaman, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to give death or life, that this man send me word to cure a man of his leprosy? Just look and see how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me, that he may learn that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and halted at the entrance of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go, wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became angry and went away, saying, I thought that for me he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and would wave his hand over the spot and cure the leprosy. Are not Abana... And Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? He turned and went away in a, in, and went away in a rage. But his servants approached him and said to him, "Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more when all he said to you was, "Wash and be clean?" So he went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. His flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. Here ends our second reading. Please pray with me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on all of us this morning. Melt us, mold us, fill us, and use us for your glory. All of this we pray in your holy name. Amen. Well, we're most definitely in the midst of Houston summertime, that time of year when there's no real point in looking at the weather forecast because you know that it'll be upper 90s and humid every single day. I remember the first time I moved to Houston, I, 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 took, a, I took a screenshot of the weather forecast just to show the people back home that yes, there is no variation in Houston. It is all the same every day in the summertime for about seven months. <laughs> and as a result of the fact that it's summertime, one of the things we get to do in the lectionary is explore some texts in the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament. And I was talking to MJ just yesterday before the funeral and he said that he had never heard a sermon preached on this text. I was like, yes, what a perfect thing to do during the summer, tackle a text that people normally don't see and try and discern if there's a word from God for us today in these words. The text is an interesting one. The main character is not an Israelite, but in fact, a Syrian And here is this great military commander, Naaman, who's got everything going for him. I mean, again, think in the ancient world, the best thing that you could be was a military commander. Uh, I mean, this is like trying to combine being Jose Altuve with, uh, I don't know, whoever whoever a standard super wealthy person is, combined with something else, all together into one. This is like the most famous man in the entire land of Syria. Everything's going right for him. He's got the whole world... Just in his hands, except for one thing. He has this skin disease. Now, in the ancient world, leprosy covered a variety of skin ailments. We're not sure what this might have been for Naaman. But we do know that those with leprosy were social outcasts, or at least were not allowed to be near someone else. So here's a man who, in spite of all of his accomplishments, is not able to lie down with his wife or give his children a hug. And this is such a big thing that when he goes to the king, his boss, uh, with with even the slightest chance of having it be healed, uh, the king of Syria, the king of Aram, gives him an enormous amount of money to bring to the king of Israel in the slight hope that he can be cured. And so here Naaman's going to great lengths. He shows up. He eventually finds his way to Elisha's home. And Elisha doesn't even come out of his house. (laughs) He just sends a servant to say, Yeah, just go wash in the river seven times, and you'll be good. And Naaman's response is, of course, one of rage. This is outrageous. An insult. And he gets ready to storm off to Syria. He comes this close to not being cured of his leprosy. The one thing that stuck in my mind, is so I keep reading this text through, is here is Naaman being his own worst enemy. And I think to myself, how often are we our own worst enemies? Or, it's probably easier to point out, how often are those around you or your friends their own worst enemies? (laughs) It's usually much easier to see it in others than it is yourself. But in all honesty, how often does this happen to us? We have the chance to be happy. We have the chance to do something great. We have a chance to enjoy ourselves. We have a chance to have something work out right. And we decide to instead make things more difficult than we need to. And we become our own worst enemies. We let ourselves get in the way. This happens again and again. At least in my life. And the question is why? Why do we keep doing this? Why does Naaman do this? Part of it, of course, for Naaman is his ego. I mean, again, he's... He's the master of the universe. He's the great military conqueror. He's from Syria, this great land, and here he is having to humble himself to go to Israel. And the very fact of having to wash in the River Jordan, this pathetic little stream versus the great rivers in Damascus, just somehow rubs him the wrong way. It's like, I'm better than that. What do you mean, go wash in the Jordan? That's nothing. How often does ego get in our way and make us, uh, or at least as our own worst enemy. I remember a story my father told about a good friend of the family, uh, one of his good friends, who uh, was an excellent salesman. Really gifted salesman, incredibly personable, someone who could sell anything. And he rose in his company to being the head of sales for his company. And... He made good living, he, made, he was doing well for his family, but somehow in his own mind, this wasn't enough. Because in his own mind, he saw that what he really needed to do was, was, was be the CEO of things and run everything. He wasn't satisfied in his own mind with any less. And so he went to the board of directors of his company and said, you know, I really want to be the CEO. And the board of directors said, well, I'm sorry, we don't think you're the right person for the job, but you're welcome to leave. So he did. He left the company. And then ended up working for a much smaller company where he was a CEO. And it turns out he wasn't any good at being a CEO. I was really sad because my father had to watch this happen. Tried to give him good advice. But this person just insisted on being his own worst enemy. Because his ego got in the way. You know, I think in in my own life that, you know... I have to admit, there are certain times where I love what I do. I love the call that I have. I love the work that I get to do every day. But where I grew up, and where I went to school, going into the clergy was not exactly something that was a well-respected profession. That's not where the superstars went. People who were really good went to Wall Street and made a bunch of money, or went into medicine, or went into law. Uh, They didn't go into the clergy. And I still remember going back uh, to my 10th reunion to college, and for some reason having a hard time with this. Because by that point, everyone is into their careers and doing well, and there's something about, like, I kept telling myself, I'm like, why are you beating yourself up over this? You love what you do, you love your work, but somehow my ego kept getting in the way. One of my least favorite movies, (laughs) I will confess, is the movie Broody. You ever seen that movie? The movie Rudy is about this uh, young man who uh, is not gifted for playing football uh, by God. That's not what he should do. But for some reason, he gets in his own head that what he really needs to do is go play football for the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. And so he does everything he can to get into Notre Dame, and then once he's at Notre Dame, he works cleaning towels and works as a manager of the team, and then eventually, on the last game of his senior year, he gets a chance to play one play for the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, and it's supposed to be this great heroic story of persistence. And when I first watched this movie, I was like, this is not a story of persistence. This is a story of someone's ego getting in the way of his life. Here's someone who, like, his calling is not to play football. He's clearly not gifted to play football. This is not what he should be doing. Um, he should be doing something else Because he's probably really talented at other things But what concerns me watching the movie Rudy Is maybe the lesson he took away was Whatever I can do, I, I'm, I'm going to do And how is that going to just Hurt his life going forward You know, imagine if, his, imagine if he thought that no matter what he did He could just put his mind to it And I can, go, I can go do that And then all of a sudden he runs into one roadblock After another, after another, after another And ends up being miserable There's that sense of somehow our ego can just get in the way of maybe something that's even better that God is trying to open up to us. I'm trying to think of other things that make us our own worst enemies. Because this happens a lot. How else are we our own worst enemies? I know our egos can get in the way, our own senses of who we are and why we, need, why we have to do something, when maybe we don't have to do it. But something else that came to mind, especially reading this passage of Naaman, is what other people think. You know, I'm sure, here's the name of this great hero of Syria. And I'm sure going through his head was, let's say he gets, let's say he goes washes in the river Jordan seven times and he goes back home and people are like, dude, why'd you go down to Israel? That was so stupid. You could have just done that here in Syria. That, you know, there's those voices in your head that, 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 oh, well, what are other people going to say? I I, I can't do that because what are other people going to say? And you end up being your own worst enemy because you become a slave to what other people think. So I think in my own life, one, one, one way this manifests itself in my own life uh, is, uh, is with relationships. So I'm someone who, um, you know, I, I came out relatively late, and I had the tendency for the longest time I'd meet someone, and immediately I'd say, like, this can't possibly work out because my mother wouldn't like him. Or what would other people think? Or how, how am I going to be judged by this? So then I would constantly self-destruct one relationship after another after another. I think I had like a gold star in self-destructing relationships. And it took a long time for me to sit back and say, you know what, John? Maybe what other people think doesn't actually matter that much. Maybe it's just okay to be happy. But that wasn't an easy thing to come to. When you think about one of my, my, uh, my roommate and best friend in Iowa... It's this guy, Matthew, who's a professor at Iowa State University. And Matthew, one of the things about Matthew is that he is as natural a dancer as anyone I know. I've never seen anyone get so much sheer joy from dancing as my friend Matthew. Here's the problem. Matthew's when I knew him, was in his early 50s. And someone in their early 50s is not supposed to go out dancing. That's meant for people in their 20s. And so here was someone who loved to dance, but never let himself actually go dance. And when I was roommates with him, though, um, I think we were sort of fed off one another and were troublemakers together. And we're like, all right, let's go do this. So we would go out. And there were, all these, there were several instances that I can remember where we showed up at some place. And, and the music was playing, but no one was dancing. And Matthew was like, you know what? I don't care. So, and he's someone who could dance with, like, one beer in him. doesn't matter. And he'd go out there, and he would start dancing, dancing like a madman, but having so much fun. And it was infectious, and within 20 minutes, you'd have 50 people dancing on the dance floor. I remember the DJ coming up to him afterwards and saying, Thank you. I don't know what you did or how you did it, but that was incredible. (coughs) And then when I went back to visit Iowa, after that, I remember talking to Matthew, and we were catching up, and I said, Oh, by the way, have you had any good times out dancing recently? And he said, No. After I left, he hadn't gone dancing once always too concerned about what someone else might think. That gets in the way of him having fun and being himself. Now, or I think of uh, the great movie Billy Elliot, I love that movie, I need to rewatch it, but for those of you who haven't seen the movie, it's a movie that takes place in the Midlands in England uh, in the 1980s, so this is a time when both the sort of Neoliberal economic realities of the world combined with a lot of Thatcher's public policies Meant to a lot of really dark times for those who are workers in the midlands of England and The main character Billy Elliot is someone whose father really wants him to be a boxer But he doesn't want to be a boxer instead. He wants to be a ballet dancer And so he ends up being a ballet dancer and one of the great tensions one of the great narrative tensions in the movie is between the father and the son Because here's the father concerned about what his coal miner friends will think And so he's constantly, oh no, what what are people going to say about him as a father? He's going to be a failure as a father because his son's not boxing but being a ballet dancer. Uh, Or what's going to happen to his son? So he kept, there's this constant fight during, and then finally at the end of the movie, there's this wonderful resolution where the father's like, I don't care what other people think. It's time to stop being my own worst enemy and to let my son just do something that he loves. But again, as I I look at this name and story, there's something else going on here that... It's also particularly personal to me. So I see this and I'm like, hmm, the Bible knows me too well. <laughs> so Naaman, when he uh, refuses to go down to the Jordan, one of the reasons he refuses to go, or like the serpent then comes to him and says, let's say, Naaman, I'd given you something really difficult to do. Or, he had, or Elijah had given you something really difficult to, to do. You would have done it, right? And he's, he thought, well, yeah. And part of the reason why he didn't go wash in the Jordan because it was too easy. You know, there's this notion that if we're going to do something, it has to involve suffering. If we're going to get where we need to get, we have to suffer through it. We have to feel pain. Otherwise, it's, it's not right. It's not redemptive, you know? Um, now, again, this is where I'm a good Puritan congregationalist, in case you had any doubts. Um, so my high school that I went to, uh, again, a good Puritan-established high school, I uh, found it back in 1645. Certain things, I think, haven't changed since 1645. <laughs> <laughs> and my headmaster, I remember, ta- I remember one of the stories that he told us uh, was the story of Mother Teresa of Calcutta. And the way that he told it, the headmaster told the story to us was someone asked Mother Teresa, why did you give up everything to go live on the streets of Calcutta and help the poorest of the poor? And her response was, I wanted a very hard life. And so our headmaster was like, that's what you should aspire to a difficult life full of suffering, because that's where uh, real meaning comes from. And so this is what we were taught and, and drilled into us. You must suffer to be happy. Um, you can't just simply go wash in the Jordan. You've got to go climb six mountains in order to get rid of your leprosy. It can't be that easy. And this, one of the things that this, one of the things this did is that, I actually have to say that this mentality certainly made me a more judgmental person, unfortunately. I remember I knew someone when I was at Yale Divinity School, Chris, um, who worked in the Yale Admissions Office, and Chris had gone to Yale College, and he came from rural Florida. When he showed up at Yale College, he took all these really hard courses and had a really miserable first year. He suffered a lot. And so his second year and beyond, he just decided to take the easiest classes he could with professors he knew um, and decided to enjoy his time in college and spend time doing things outside of class. And I remember him describing his college experience, and I was so judgmental. I'm like, you didn't suffer enough. You couldn't have gone to college like that. <laughs> and somehow it felt like it somehow like, graded me the wrong way. He was happy. Why was he happy? He wasn't suffering enough. And, you know, again, I, I was this, this sort of suffering mentality, certainly uh, maybe my own worst enemy when I was working in Iowa, at a church in Iowa. And I was determined to have that church go really well. And I was determined to make myself suffer as much as possible. And no, I'm not going to take a day off. And when I have my vacation, I'm going to go spend it officiating weddings. Because God forbid I actually relax on my, week, on, on, my, on my time off. And so I kept pushing myself and pushing myself. Because darn it, this is what it took. I had to suffer. And of course, I didn't need to suffer that much. In fact, churches move at a glacial pace. And that's Okay. <laughs> It takes a little while to get things done in the church And you know what, if it takes an extra week It's not the end of the world Taking a day off is actually nice It's actually healthy Better for myself and better for the congregation Maybe you don't need to suffer So I was thinking like What do these things have in common In terms of us being our own worst enemy Where sometimes our ego gets in the way Sometimes the voices of others get in the way Sometimes this obsession with Forcing us to suffer That's deeply embedded in our society Gets in the way what do all these things have in common? What do all these things have in common? On some level, all these things have one thing in common. They're based in a sense that we think that we're not worthy. That what we're doing right now is not good enough and our ego doesn't, is, isn't good enough. That somehow we're not worthy of that. Or that other people won't like this, so we're somehow not worthy. Or we're not worthy, so we have to suffer. We can't possibly be happy without suffering. On some level, there's a sense of we're not worthy. I had a conversation this past week uh, with a friend of mine, and we were talking about salvation. Uh, This is what one does when you're friends with a minister. You talk about (laughs) salvation. (laughs) And so we're having this conversation, and I was describing the Protestant Reformed notion of salvation. And I said... It's like in this Protestant Reformed notion of salvation, which is rooted in the writing, writings of Paul and then elaborated later on, uh, you're saved, you're made right before God, you're deemed worthy through absolutely nothing about what you do. Your actions do not make you worthy before God in the classic Protestant way. Your worthiness before God is purely a gift of grace from God. And you have to accept that as a gift. And realize that God's message to you is, you are worthy as you are right now. And, and, I, I, and I pushed this even further. I said, this is why I'm a universalist. This is why I believe that if there's a heaven and a hell, that everyone goes to heaven. Because God's mercy is that great. Because that's the fundamental message of the faith. Is that you are loved and you are worthy as you are. And that is the way God made you to be. But this friend of mine was raised a Southern Baptist. And boy, he was, he was taught as a Southern Baptist, no, no, no. Bad people go to hell. Good people get rewarded. I've got to work harder. Maybe I'm worthy enough. Maybe I'm not. And I'm like, it's okay. God loves you as you are. It's a free gift. It doesn't have to be earned. Now, again, we are our own worst enemies sometimes. As you can tell from this sermon, that's happened a lot to me in my life. (laughs) But I think that if we can remember that basic message that you are loved by God, that basic gracious gracious message at the center of our faith, that we can start the process of avoiding some of those things. That we can hear that invitation of Elisha to go down to the river and wash seven times. It's not that hard. But you know what? You come out clean. You come out feeling yourself. And you come out feeling loved. How wonderful is that?